let's see. There we go. And there she is. There she is. Good morning, Miss Wendy. Let me make sure I get this right. Wasit Barrett. That's correct. Good morning from Sleepy Cobalt Studios in New York. Cobalt Studios in New York. What are you doing in uh, Cobalt Studios? I am teaching a historical scene painting class to the students that are in a two-year program with Rachel Keebler. So I come in and I teach dry pigment techniques. So yesterday we worked with handling dry pigment and um, color wheels, and we also did two seascapes. Today we're going to work on draperies, um, and we're also going to work on gold ornament and glass. So we do a whole series of projects, all measuring about four feet by five feet over the course of five days. Excellent. So to introduce you to our, our audience, this is, I'm speaking with um, Miss Wendy Wasit Barrett. Um, she specializes in the evaluation, restoration, and replication of painted scenes for theater, opera, ethnic hall, and Masonic stage. Um, she is the she runs the blog and Facebook page, Dry Pigment. She is currently the president of Historic Stage Services. She is the former curator director at Minnesota's Masonic Heritage Center. She has a recent publication, The Santa Fe Scottish Rite Freemasonry Architecture and Theater. And to top it all off, she has a PhD from the University of Minnesota in theater. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's great to finally get a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much, Richard. It's good talking to you, too. So, um, so you've been, you've made um, scene painting, scenic art, your life's work, it seems, uh, because yeah. when I, when I think every day, if, if someone, if people uh, get a chance to follow you, you are constantly putting out material after material after material of, 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 about, about your work. Um, how did you get started and, you know, yeah, tell me, tell me the beginnings of your story. Oh, well, um, acting, musical theater, and dance. That's what brought me to the University of Minnesota. And as I was taking the early courses, um, introduction to theater, early scene design, I actually created a set, and I was snagged by a Professor Emeritus, uh, Lance Brockman. And he said, you know, you should think about taking my scene painting class. And I took the class as part of general requirements. I had no desire or thought of going into scene painting at all. And three months later, I was working for Sesame Street Live um, as my first professional scenic art gig. It was something that came very naturally to me. We were working with dry pigment, so I was trained in with dry pigment and diluted hide glue and historical scene painting techniques. And I was completely bitten by the bug. Any desire to be on stage or dance or act was completely gone because I was completely focused on, on scene painting. And I was there at the perfect time because the collections were coming into the University of Minnesota's Performing Art Archives, the Great Western Stage Equipment Company collection, and the um, Hollick collection, which was based on Sossman and Landis Studios out of Chicago. So as an undergraduate, I started immediately. So, you know, I'm 18, 19 years old with processing historic scenery that was primarily Masonic in nature. And I was replicating the designs. I was replicating small scale dry pigment um, studies. And then in the summer, I would be working on um, the showboat, which was roll drops. And it was something that just came very naturally to me that I really enjoyed. And as I got into the historical aspect, um, I worked with Lance Brockman as his assistant for the curator, curator of um, 
theater of the fraternity working with the exhibits and i was just completely i don't know entranced with the idea of what was ha happening and the complexity during the mid to late 19th century and early 19th century on the stage the scenic illusion the skill of the scenic artists and so although i was continuing to freelance as, as just a regular scenic artist and you know for various projects, whether it was a theme park in Japan or whether it was a billboard that hung in Times Square, I was able to take the historic techniques and training that I had learned and apply it to contemporary painting. But my passion was still the historic training, in okay. particular one artist. So more than you need to know. But no, that's great. Um, so to help me understand, what is what has been the difference for um, between a scenic artist and a scenic painter? Well, in many regions, there really is nothing. It's just a, a different terminology. In my opinion, a scenic artist um, has a greater connection to a fine art background and fine art training, um, and looks at the entire stage picture as a full stage aesthetic. So especially a scenic artist from the 19th century and early 20th century simply did not just paint. They would help engineer the scenic effects and do the designing. Whereas by the 20th century, as you get into scene painters, they're painting scenes based on designers' um, creations and concepts. So that's how I, and I apologize for all, I can't figure out how to turn that off, Richard. <laughs> so, <laughs> But um, that's how I perceive it. And it's more of a historical perspective. I, I wouldn't put the, the scenic artist is better than the scenic painter. It's just the scenic artist has a different job description in a sense. They're looking at the entire picture of what's on stage. And there likely isn't a stage designer. That's the historical scenic artist. Today, I think those terms are used um, interchangeably. It's just a preference, you know? It's kind of like stage carpenter, stage mechanic from the 19th century. Those terms seem to be interchangeable at that time because sometimes the stage carpenter was technically the mechanic that was designing all the scenic illusions. And sometimes the scenic artist was also the stage mechanic. So I see it as more of a preference, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's one of the things that we run across with, um, with students is, uh, trying to give them an idea of of what people do, and you, if you, if you're familiar with uh, you know the Oystad Theater Words project, you know everyone, depending on where you are regionally, may have a different name for something. They may call it's kind of like um, we a crescent wrench is a spanner somewhere else, or a stinger is a is a cable, or you know things like that. So it's good to know that you know that at one time there was a distinction and now things are just kind of getting all mixed together um you mentioned uh lance brockman um how now you he was your mentor yes he um was my mentor became friend and he he taught me how to paint historically because there's there's actually a lineage of what i do and i consider myself the the fourth generation person who's been studying historical scenic art techniques so at the university of texas in austin to do the precursor to lance there was john rothgeb and he was a professor there so dr rothgeb made some early 
links between Masonic scenery, which in the United States is the great catch-all of what's left from historic scenery collections, um, and the early scenic studios from the mid to late 19th century and into the 20th century. So his research is just, it's, it's astounding. He passed away in the early 1890s and his research was continued by Lance Brockman at the University of Minnesota. And he went through um, a series of grants, many of which were through USITT. He documented a lot of historic scenery collections, also again, making the connection of, here's this great catch-all of, you know, amazing scenery at Masonic temples um, and different fraternal halls. And then I was trained by Lance by the, er, by the late 1980s. Um, early 1990s and kind of continued that research. And why I say fourth generation is before Rothgeb in Chicago was um, Jim Moronic, and he managed to get a, an entire huge collection of Sossman and Landis scenery that was primarily Masonic. So his stuff went to John Rothgeb, who expanded on it from a um, theater historian perspective versus Jim, James Moronic was a scenic artist. Uh, so, a lot of your work has focused on the the Masonic halls. How did uh, how did what role did those play? Because, for, for I would say for a majority of people, they think uh, Freemasons, they think Benjamin Franklin, founding fathers, or they may think it's that weird building in their their town that no, they never really seem to see people go into never from time people. to time. But uh, could you tell me more about the, the role and, and, and how, what's the connection between your work and, and, and that, uh, that organization? Um, well, first of all, the parallel that I'm going to make to put it in a contemporary context is if you look at theater seating and theater lighting and new performance venues being constructed now, a lot have to do with those large community churches. So you think about the major clients who are have the money to buy seating, lighting, just for a, for a strictly performance venue, taking religion out of it. That's kind of like a major mover and shaker. That same thing was happening from about 1890 until probably 1920s, where the major movers and shakers who were changing the industry were actually the Scottish Rite Freemasons because they were building state-of-the-art theaters complete with costumes and scenery and, and lighting effects, everything you could hope for because they had the money to create theaters better than most private citizens or public communities could do. I mean, these were theaters that rivaled Broadway. These were theaters that rivaled the new California theater in, um, in San Francisco. It, it's, a, it's a whole group that was a major part of the theatrical manufacturing industry. So Masonic projects, for example, you have an opera hall, let's say a 1906 opera hall, and they're going to order like 12 sets of scenery. So you might have 15 drops, a couple of wings, maybe some leg drops if they have the fly space. You have a Masonic um, order for a Scottish Rite. They will have typically between 80 and 120 drops that are all spaced on two inch to four inch centers. So, I mean, really packed in, plus hundreds of costumes that are being purchased and Frank Adams, um, Frank Adam electric boards and all of the bells and whistles you can get and maybe like a hundred set pieces and all the props that go with it. So the amount of money being spent by the Masons on top notch 
uh, quality, both theatrical technology and stage work and design, they really shifted the industry quite a bit. Anne was creating an entire clientele that was not trained theatrically. And that's where my personal take on it is you have the East Coast and you have all the stage hands and you have the hemp systems and really the expertise that needs to go into moving scenery up and down safely and the training. And then they have a bunch of masons who might be cattle barons or just your average clerk or sometimes clergy. And they have no idea what a backstage does. And yet they're getting the largest scenery collections that are being delivered at that time with a counterweight system that's specifically manufactured for people who have no idea what they're doing and hopefully won't kill themselves. So, I mean, that's, there's such a major clientele. It's like um, pageants. There are different aspects to scenic studios in the theater industry that they branch. So they weren't specifically creating just for theater or just for opera. They would be doing the, the pageantries, the huge spectacle pyrotechnic shows in the 19th century. This was all part of their bread and butter touring shows, the huge spectacles for the Ringling Brothers that had Joan of Arc or the the cloth in the field of gold um, or the gold cloth on the, oh, I'm sorry, I can't think of what the title is. But you had these different aspects to the theater industry that were huge money makers, And really at the top of them were the Masons. So more than so, but No, 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 that's great. Um, I, I wonder if uh, anyone's ever done a correlation between the, the stagehand and uh, what became the IATSE and, you know, the what may have been probably a feeder system of from from the, the, that group of people, the Masons and, and things like that. Um, or maybe maybe that's maybe that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know. That just kind of jumped into my head. Um, but you you are um, so they're, they're ordering all these drops. They're ordering all this, all this, all this stuff. Um, uh, you you talked about pageants. Were you know were they putting on their own plays? Were they putting on um, things that you know like a high school would do, like Oklahoma, for example? Were they doing Oklahoma? <laughs> well, no. Although that would be kind of entertaining, a la King Solomon. Um, what what they're basically doing is staging morality plays. So the idea of the Scottish right, um, and to put them within context of Freemasonry. Um, Freemasonry are those first three degrees or levels that speculative Masons who take the ideas and the materials and the symbolic tools of operative Masons. So if you think of the cathedral builders, the tools that they needed, the trades that they had, the secret sharing of information as far as um, techniques, apply that to a more um, theoretical interpretation. So kind of like looking at sociological impacts and history and different cultures in a way to make you a better person. They take all these little building tools and they apply it to their own lives and becoming a better person. So one example, and this will get back to theater real quick, is you have the rough ashlar, which is the stone that needs to be shaped over time into the perfect shape that will fit within like a wall or an arch. So you do the same thing with men is, and I'm saying men because Masons in the United States are all, it's an all male organization, is you shape that person to become uh, just a better person. That's the whole point. There's no one particular religion. There's no one po particular political stance. Those are the first three degrees. And from this group that was similar to um, the Odd Fellows or the um, Knights Pythias, all of those 
branched into different extensions or concordant orders. And one of them was the Scottish Rite. And the Scottish Rite took what was taught in the, the Blue Lodge or those first three degrees of Anna Apprentice, Fellow Craft, and Master Mason and turned it into a huge long tale of 29 steps. And they follow the construction of King Solomon's Temple. So that's built the killing of the chief architect and the search for the, you know, the three ruffians, the, the assassins that kill him. They they go into everything has a lesson um, that you're able to talk about. And the, the idea of doing a dramatic interpretation was never initially intended for the stage. It was just a dramatic reenactment that would happen in the center of, you know, a rectangular room with an altar in the center. Altar has nothing to do with any particular religion, kind of like just acknowledging a, a greater power. And they would do that dramatic reenactment. Well, amazingly, a couple of theater manufacturers stepped in and said, you know, <laughs> we could do this better for you. <laughs> we know a guy. <laughs> we know a guy and, and a guy that might make a little money off of the whole deal to begin with. So they were selling costumes already and rituals and all the paraphernalia that you would need. I mean, one of the 18th century scenes was a, a version of hell. And it's the whole idea that these are the punishments of if you fall prey to temptation, this is kind of what happens to you. So they had screens of hell scenes like Dante's Inferno backlit by candles or gas that would be this horrible illumination thing to scare the candidate. Well, that same thing obviously transfers to stage quite easily and beautifully. So if you take one of those walls and elevate a little platform area, some of the early ones were just tableaus where there weren't necessarily actors. It was more of a backing. And then they got bigger and bigger. Now, there's something also happening simultaneously with this, which is what's what's so exciting, is, sure, you, you have people who have a great idea because they work with the theater industry and specialize in scenic illusion. You also have a shift as far as a huge influx of cash of what's going to happen. So you have one candidate who is initiated, let's say, into a degree. If you have a stage, you have one exemplar representing a class of candidates. So instead of doing the whole show for one person, you do the whole show for a class of, in the 20s, it was up to a thousand candidates. Now think about the financial implications of suddenly taking in a huge amount of dues, fees, and, and you're sitting on a pile of cash, most of which will do amazingly good things and they will give back to society because each of the fraternities kind of had their own little um, group that they gave to. But it also means you can build these amazing stone monuments with fantastic theaters to really enrich the experience, the stage experience, complete with music, complete with stunning effects of Mount Patmos. They used like a Vesuvius eruption where on stage all of the buildings crumble you have you know you use your thunder sheets you use your wind machines you use the strobe effects you have metallic foils attached to the backdrop so it simulates the fires of the fiery underworld i mean it's really exciting with what's there and and over time what happened is the masons got tied or the scottish right masons got tied into this visual you know, American Victorian 19th century aesthetic that has maintained. So if you go into, let's say, the Santa Fe Scottish, right, 
they had that same stage aesthetic, all of the original counterweight rigging, all of most of the original costumes because people obviously got bigger, so they had to use more costumes, but all the original scenery and props and stage effects that would have been used in 1912. And so for us, it's like all of these little living theater museums throughout the United States. So it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff, again, hiding in plain sight. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So, um, obviously, I mean, this information is fantastic. Um, and I know that you've worked very hard to, to, to bring it to people. Um, uh, could you tell me, so, uh, I, boy, I have like 17 questions I want to ask all at once. Um, uh, well, let's start with, let's start with this one. Um, your 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 blog and your Facebook page is called Dry Pigment. Where does that come from? Okay, that comes from the painting system um, that was used to create most of the historical scenery. So it's basically distemper painting. Dry pigment is the pure color, um, ground into powdered form, made into a paste, and mixed with diluted um, animal hide and hoof glue. So. What's delightful about dry pigment versus any of the pre-mixed paints that we use now, which is, that's my preferred artistic medium, um, is that it reflects light differently on stage than any of the pre-mixed paints. There is a pure color, so it's not just the color of the dry pigment that works so stunningly beautiful under stage lights. There is how it was applied, and most of the colors were mixed on the palette which means instead of just painting a sky blue, mm-hmm. you know, blue and a little bit of white to have the variation, there would be blue with a little bit of French mineral orange and maybe some celestial blue and a little bit of Dutch pink and, and raw ochre or raw sienna and yellow ochre. And that reflects light differently. And there is all, all of the historical scenes because of how they were painted and the materials that they were using. And I'm not saying that it can't be done today, but the materials and the process made it easier for all of those scenes to transition from dawn to midday to dusk to twilight. And just with usually on a Scottish Rite stage, there were three types of lights. It was white, red, and blue. Very seldom was the green introduced for the Scottish Rite collections because you just needed that red and blue light to combine and shift either way. And the white was kind of to pump up the intensity in having played with the border lights and the various um, systems that are illuminating historic drops. There is just this quality that it's a perfect matte finish. It, it <laughs> Under light, it's just magical. And so you'll have lighting designers, set designers, scenic artists, stagehands who see these scenes under light and play with the lights and and they're entirely different scenes from bathed under blue light to adding in more red. And the systems that could afford the four lights into the border light system where you had the red, blue and green, which is the standard, and the white to increase intensity. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you with your ding. <laughs> um, that it's it's just a versatility that you have so no it's um i'm being tapped at it by the, the door so i'm trying to ignore it you know <laughs> welcome to live uh, <laughs> no um 
you uh, uh, talked about the the lighting. Um, there was a series of posts from your from your uh, from your um, from your blog where you addressed that, and there was a long conversation about about that um, about what it would look like. <laughs> No, thanks to you, Richard, especially for reposting it and starting that conversation. That that was wonderful to get uh, people who actually specialize in light. That's <laughs> all. So, well, it, it it it's funny because when we don't talk, or you know, it's not trade secrets. It's it's just stuff that you know it, we don't consider. We don't we don't necessarily cross pollinate enough, but. Um, the, re the reason I bring it up the lighting is because of this whole now dynamic shift towards LED and the, the recent movement of save tungsten in the UK that 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 issue. Um, you know what do you <laughs> again I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of questions. I just have to figure out how to word it. Um, the 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 idea of LED technology, is that eventually going to, has that begun to change the perception of color and how people now produce scenic drops and, 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 and scenery? Um, well, they're, okay, <laughs> just like you, there are like 50,000 ways to answer this. Um, two things. One is um, the post that you're talking about is I, I showed a drop from Hastings, Nebraska, and a brand new lighting system that they had just spent so much money on was installed. And unfortunately, although it was beautiful and LED friendly and fantastic, it did not effectively light two dimensional scenery. They had put in a lighting system that would create beautiful light on three dimensional objects and people, but not effectively light flat scenery that was hanging very closely together without having huge ugly hot spots and i i know there are the diffusers and different things you can do but it it was not an effective way to replace the border lights so you have a, a little battle going on to begin with is there's the lighting a three-dimensional thing on stage and then there's really how historical scenery needs to be lit and that does inquire the overall general wash that can be shifted from the border lights so that's one thing that's going on. Um, as far as shifting into LED, I played with LED um, strip lights on a historic scenery. And it's, it's amazing. And you can pull out colors and have much more versatility, but that's with the idea that the person running the lights actually knows how to effectively light historic scenery. And I always go back to, I think that's why when the original theater manufacturers were installing the, the border lights with the historic scenery, let's say like 1912, why white, red, and blue was the primary option because there's always someone who's like, hey, let's pump up the green, let's pump up the green. And suddenly you have a predominantly green lit forest and everyone looks horrible under it because it doesn't work well. And so I think by the MC Lilly who was doing the contract and working with Sossman and Landis and Frank Adam, I think that by removing that factor, it kind of made it idiot proof. And so although LEDs give this amazing range of color, 
depending on which instruments you're looking at. And those whole strip lights that you can hang above the stage, although they're pretty horrifically expensive now, can give this amazing light source. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make it look better because it has to be the person. You have to have someone who knows what they're doing run it. And in the case of where I'm working, Masons, they, they don't necessarily know how to do that. However, to the third part of what you're talking about as far as today, there are two variables that I see happening that the majority of people aren't going to notice, but that I find frustrating. With the LED lights, you have, let's say you're going for that specific gel color that you're targeting. There might be six different ways to get that one color. And so there are variables in the LED lights that weren't there with you know, either gelled lights or these are your dipped lamps. They add variables. At the same time, in the painting industry with the pre-mixed paints, you add variables with the colors that are being put into the pre-mixed paints to create that color. So I think, you know, me, dry pigment, there's blue, right? You go into a Home Depot store, and I'm using that not to say I use Home Depot paint, but you go into a Home Depot store and you want to have blue. Their blue might be a little bit of black, a little bit of yellow, a little bit of red. You've seen the machines that dispense it. And that ends up creating the color. That adds in a variable. That's a different kind than I'm doing the blue and adding a little more pure color. Those are the variables that I see as being problematic for the future of scenic art because sometimes well and actually stage design and using two-dimensional scenes because not everyone thinks about that and there are so many variables of we're going into this space and this is the specific lighting system yet the drop's been painted that way and we see some of that in the 1920s when you start to get the spatter factor of okay if it's under cool lights we'll have some cool spatter on it so the scene will still not be killed on stage right. But, but those are the different things that I see going on, Richard, is, is there are so many um, moving balls in the air at the same time that it does make it difficult. So it's like, are you going historic and how does this impact the scenic art industry? Because we've also gone away from certain traditional techniques and there are more dimensional factors. So does that, that's my 15 responses to your <laughs> complex no question. no it's it, it, it's great i mean you know th this is like uh you could have a a, a whole semester of, of of classes on on this very topic um so let's transition you you talk about um the the techniques disappearing and this history um can you so could you tell me about what Historic Stage Services does and, and, and how they provide information or help to people who aren't quite clear on either whether or not to restore something, whether how to preserve it, how to do something? Could you tell me more about that? Um, well, what I've, what I've noticed is occasionally people with historic venues aren't provided with all of the information or historical significance of the machinery that's existing behind the curtain line. So, so much attention and detail in a historic venue is spent on the auditorium. You know, they'll go back to the exact color and gilding and murals and how, how close you are to the theater seating and what the lighting may have been like and how you want to illuminate the space. And as soon as you cross the curtain line, it becomes, yeah, old technology, we should just replace it. And so, 
it safety is often cited as a problem um, that it all needs to go. It's just not safe. But sometimes a lot of historical, historically significant artifacts are removed without proper documentation, without understanding what's being removed. So the whole point of historic stage services is not to solely focus on the painted scenery, which is what I've done for 30 years. I mean, the evaluation, the appraisals, the replication and the restoration. It's to look at the entire stage area and give people with historic venues an option to understand what they're getting rid of, what they're keeping and to provide them with all the information so they can really make an informed decision. And and we want to we solely focus on historic venues because that's what we bring to the table. It's the expertise in understanding the stage rigging and the historic scenery and how they work together and how it should be lit and what the options are and coming up with if you don't go solely historic restoration, how to combine old and new technology that works best and sometimes saves you a ton of money in the process, which is like an added bonus. So it's the whole idea of don't throw the baby out with the bath, bath water. So. Excellent. And, and uh, who are the other experts that you're, you're working with in this, in this venture? Well, I work with Rick Poichuk. I work with Paul Santabru, Um, and those are primarily, we each bring um, different talents to the table as far as going in and writing programs and looking at the stage machinery. So I bring in the stage aesthetic and um, machinery. Paul Santabru brings in the installation and practicality, and Rick brings into the historical stage scenery. So. Excellent. Because um, I know uh, in Theater Design and Technology Magazine, um, uh, a recent article by Rick on, uh, on, on rigging um, has, has recently been published. And I also know he is uh, working on his second volume of, uh, I, oh, I'm gonna butcher it, does anyone look up? I think he's working on the, the second volume of historic stage rigging. Nobody looks up. <laughs> Nobody looks up. I knew, <laughs> I, knew I was gonna look up. I do, I, I do. I should have written that down. Um, um, but, you're you're in um, you're in New York right now at uh, Cobalt Studios. So um, uh, is this part of Historic Stage Services, or is this um, are you you're you're teaching? What 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 exactly are you are you getting geared up for uh, today? Um, it, this is me because I've continued to go sharing different historical scene painting techniques, and this is the one of the ways that I give. I give back is I, I try to share this and luckily I've been invited by Rachel back annually. I'm, I'm part of the curriculum, but no, it's, it's me coming as a historical scene painter to pass on techniques. This is not the company. Um, what I have geared up for today is we are going to go and paint gold ornament because one of their projects coming up is the hasty pudding show and they'll be creating the scenery here and a lot of is gold ornaments. So as I teach historical scene painting techniques, it's mainly based on speed. So that's why we're cranking out so many quick projects because it's meant to be viewed from a distance. It's completely historical as far as the different values and tones and brush strokes and economy of, of everything. Um, so that's what I'm doing today until probably about, I don't know, eight o'clock tonight. So we kind of have a full day of six students and working with dry pigment. Excellent. Are, are you going to be attending USITT uh, in March? I hope so. 
um, the three, well, there are four big things on my docket that I want to do this year. One is I want to be at PQ for sure. So I'm going to make that happen somehow. Um, the other is the League of Historic American Theaters Conference. I want to make sure I'm at that. Um, Jenny Knott of Roscoe and I are doing another scene painting workshop for CITT in the Yukon in August, but USITT would, would hit it off. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping to be in Louisville. Well, if we don't cross paths there, um, I know uh, Trinidad is currently um, scheduled to, to represent at uh, at the PQ. So we'll, uh, we'll hopefully cross paths there. Um, uh, you, you've already finished one one book. Um, the, as we said earlier, the Santa Fe Scottish Rite Freemasonry Architecture and Theater. Is there a, a second book in in the in the in your future? Yeah, um, and this actually goes back to the dry pigment. I'm simultaneously writing about four different books at the same time, and I'm posting a page and a half every day. I uh, th two years ago I started drypigment.net. And the intent of that is it was the quickest way that I could get information that I've accumulated out over the past couple decades to just basic people because you can do keyword searches and so you can type in a particular theater. On the website, I'm currently following the life and times of Thomas G. Moses, and that's the first book that's going to come out. Um, he worked from 1873 to 1934 did a whole bunch of different stuff across North America as far as Ringling Brothers, Broadway, Coney Island, Masonic temples. And right now I'm in 1906. So the point of the blog is not for me to just write every day, but it's so that people, if they're interested in dry pigment, if they're interested in one of the majestic theaters in a particular city, you can look and come across information that I've had. Right now in the whole 1906 to 1909 era, I'm looking at Armbruster Studios out of Columbus, Ohio, and I'm going to be shifting into Lee Lash Studios and advertising curtains. So it's a way to get information out that otherwise is, is pretty much hidden in our history. It's been lost to our institutional memory. So okay, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I, like I said, I, I, I could occupy my entire day with 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 talking to you. I know you've got uh, uh, work work to work to do. And uh, and from our, our original talk, uh, a critter that hopefully hasn't invaded the, the shop. <laughs> oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't want to no, talk no, about no. that. No kidding, but I, I really appreciate it. It's an honor being asked to talk with you, Richard. I think very highly of what you do, especially with archiving technical theater history. It's an amazing site. So right. thank you. Well, you know, I uh, I appreciate it. I'm humbled by it. Um, I'm I'm again eternally grateful that uh, uh, I've got I've, we've started this 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 now uh, podcast to to be a little bit more engaging. Uh -huh. um, is there anything that you'd like to uh, promote? Tell people oh, yeah. about um, uh, where we can find you on social media, all that. Okay. Well, one of the things that my company has started to offer, and, you know, as I'm looking, it's like, oh, my God, I look so tired. Um, one of the things that my company has decided to offer is historic scene painting retreats. They're scenic retreats at um, our shop, which is an old stagecoach stop along the Rum River in central Minnesota. 
Um, it's a Friday through Monday workshop where we go out, and this is intended for artists, scenic artists, and artists at heart, where we go plain air painting. We come in, we have local feasts with food in a gourmet kitchen. We transfer our small scale um, designs and paintings to large scale flats um, using historic medium like uh, media like dry pigment, different dyes. And it's meant to be a whole way to rejuvenate the spirit. And what this is based on is the 19th century scenic artists that when they weren't working together would go on sketching trips, learn from each other, socialize and be able to apply it back in the shop so they continued to make themselves better. It's very small, only a couple of students at a time because it's meant to be an intimate, fun experience where we just learn and, and take time for ourselves and delve into our art. So that can be found at historicstageservices.com. Um, and that's kind of the new exciting thing. I wanted, it, it's all in a way of trying to give something back and raise visibility of this is a really significant art form that applies to today. So that's that's what I'm promoting. Excellent. Um, you can also find uh, Wendy on uh, her blog, drypigment.net. Yep. Um, you can follow her on, like her page on Facebook. Um, do you have a, an Instagram account? Yes, but I'm, I'm figuring that out. <laughs> I, I, I totally it's understand that. Yeah. Totally understand. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, people out there pick up her book, check her out. If there's a, if there's a, a seminar, a talk, go, uh, go listen. You, you won't, uh, you won't, uh, you won't be at a loss. It, it's, it's a great thing. Um, I know, uh, I've been saying this every, every, every three, four episodes now. Um, but I, I tell this to everybody. I don't care who they are. Um, we love you. I love you. Keep putting out the positive vibes, positive energy, and uh, yeah, keep doing, uh, keep keep doing, keep doing good. You take care, Richard. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>